Welcome back to Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm Rob Walling. Today, I sit down with Savvy Cal founder Derek Reimer, and we answer listener questions. Questions about how to validate when entering a competitive space. We give book recommendations for SaaS founders. We talk about whether a non-technical founder should outsource development or try to find a co-founder. And there even might be an appearance from Rob GPT. So without further ado, let's dive right into the questions. Eric Reimer, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. Got some good questions today, man. Hand-picked to fit your expertise. It's almost like people knew you were going to be on the show or <laughs> something. Excited to dive in. Yeah, it's going to be good. Our first question is an audio question from Gabe about idea validation in a competitive market. Hey, Rob. My name is Gabe. I'm listening each week from Denver, Colorado. I'm a developer and I'm looking into getting into SaaS foundership and I found your podcast and YouTube channel just incredibly helpful. So first off, big fan. Thanks. <laughs> uh, my question today is around idea validation. I think I've got an idea that might have some value and I'm in the validation stage right now. I want to build a CRM tool for a small and medium-sized business niche that I've identified. And the space that I'm looking into doesn't have any huge incumbents, nothing like Salesforce or anything like that, but there is still a fair amount of competition. How do you think about idea validation when exploring a space where there's already clear competition? There's definitely an established market here. And when that's the case, what do you see as the validation goals I should be working towards? All right. Thanks again. Bye. It's a good question. I bet it's a pretty common one. You want to kick us off? What are your thoughts? Sure. Yeah. I mean, and I can definitely relate to this one a bit. I myself are in a decently competitive competitive space. So I would say my my biggest piece of advice is to start with a clear hypothesis about why the market needs another alternative, right? If it's if it's crowded already, then clearly buyers have a lot of different options. And it's a tough road to try to just head into that and mostly have a set of undifferentiated features. So I think one, coming up with that hypothesis of what different needs to be out there, what, what is their demand for, and then try your best to disprove your hypothesis. Rather than trying to seek validation for it, try to seek the opposite. Try to find reasons why people don't need this or why what they're using right now isn't just good enough. I would recommend reading The Mom Test by Rob Fitzpatrick. It's a great primer on how to have these types of conversations with customers without picking up too many false signals because people will want to be supportive of you. They'll want to tell you what you want to hear, and that's exactly not what you want to hear. You want to hear the raw truth from them. Yes, and... On this one. So I think that if you enter a competitive space, the biggest question you have to ask is what you said, how am I going to be different? Because if there are other competitors, you not only have to be different, you have to be different enough and better enough that they will switch. So the big question I'd be thinking is if people are already using a CRM, switching costs are relatively high for CRMs. Now that's good once you have customers. It means your churn's going to be low. That's bad entering a competitive space. It's a hurdle to overcome. And so the biggest, probably one or two questions I'd be thinking about is what do people hate about the bigger players? And I know you said there's no like massive incumbent, but there are competitors. I would be digging in everywhere. Captera, Quora, private Slack groups, Facebook groups, wherever anybody hangs out in this space. And I would be trying to suss out just by the conversation, maybe by questions. You don't want to come out being too obvious. Hey, what does everybody hate about this? <laughs> this one. And if it's people are like, uh, building a competitor. But the idea is that if no one has an issue with your current competitors, why would they switch? Price isn't enough. If you want to do price, you're going to get a lot of cheap Demandy customers with high churn, right? Now you can get some customers that way. Can you can you build a business doing that? Sure. Are you gonna build a business that I would want to run that way? No. You know, and so that's what I'd be looking at is like, what do folks hate about those larger competitors? Or at least where maybe hate is a strong word, but what did they dislike? And then I think the other two things I'd be thinking about is I'd want to get some sense of the size of the market. Depends on how big of a business you want. And we don't need $10 billion markets like in venture. But there are some markets that are literally 
10 million or 20 million, some SaaS markets. And that's a really small market. And even if, you know, I guess it also depends on your goals. If you want to build a $100,000 a year business, okay, 10 million is enough. I think most, most of us want to build that million dollar, $5 million business. That is going to be really tough if the market is that small. So I'd be thinking, I don't know, 50, 100 million. You know, there's, there's some number. I haven't given it a ton of thought. But like, you don't want to try to have to capture 50% of the market to achieve your goal. And you're not going to get an absolute market size. Don't go into MBA mode. Just to get an idea of it. Who are the biggest incumbents and do some Googling to see if they've ever set their revenue at any point and then just add it up and multiply by two. You know, just take a guess. And it gives you kind of an order of magnitude. Then the last thing I will say, it's the question that everyone forgets is how are you going to get customers? It's that when Ruben Gomez went to do Signwell, he started SEO a year, at least a year before they launched the app. He got a domain. He started building templates for contracts or you know, whatever he did for his SEO stuff. He had tens of thousands, if not more, uniques a month before that app ever hit the ground. And SEO is just one play. If it's going to be cold outbound, why not try cold outbound today? without any product and just start doing the cold outbound and saying, I don't have a product, but I'm trying to solve this. This pain point really bother you. And if no one will reply to you today, why are they going to reply once you have a product? What do you think? Yeah, no, that's, that's all really good stuff. I recall one, one app that I was trying to validate back in the day was for realtors. This is a, co- a common thing that a lot of us do. Like I was buying a house and realized how bad so many parts of the process seemed to me at least. And I did, I made a spreadsheet of like a hundred realtors and called them up and it was a grueling process. And I got, I got a lot of useful insight about the market, about how they think about things. I think I was thinking about like a website builder for realtors or something. So I was like, all their websites suck and uh, they don't hook an MLS and the prices are always out of date. And I learned why, why many of the things are stuck the way they are. And I learned about how realtors actually think about the value of their website the answer is not very much. And so tons of things um, that I, I wouldn't have learned if I had just assumed that they were thinking about the value of a website like I did. So I think those are all good points. That saved you at least six months of building. Mm-hmm. You were going to build like a Squarespace type, like a stripped yep. out Squarespace yep. for realtors. And I remember it was pretty obvious. You're like, I did these hundred cold calls and however many people you talk to, you're like, yeah, this is, no, this is not going to work. It was one, well, I found out it's a market I really don't want to work in. But two, it's nobody's going to pay what I need to be worth it. Yep, yep. So thanks for the question, Gabe. I hope that was helpful. Our next question is another audio question from Michael. Talks about when it's worth it and how he's stressed all the time. Hi Rob, thank you so much for your podcast. I really enjoy listening to it, especially the Rob Solo Adventures. My name is Michael, I'm a full-time student and I created my own SaaS product like 16 months ago and it's currently hovering about at about 1200 bucks a month. So my current problem is that I'm very anxious about everything and I'm really stressed out about it. So every time I find a new competitor or a new competitor gets on the market, I like completely losing it or whenever somebody drops a comment somewhere and the person isn't completely satisfied, I'm also completely stressed out about it and worrying about it. So my question to you is, how do you know that it's worth it? And when would you consider moving on to a new new project or a new, new product? Because the thing is, if I'd made like 10K a month, it wouldn't be a problem. I think so. I don't know, but I think so. But currently I'm only making like 1200 bucks a month and that's not worth it for me. But the goal is that it's worth it sometimes. So very interested in your opinion on whether to move on or not. Thank you so much in advance and keep up the good work. So Derek, as two people who definitely do not struggle with anxiety at all, <laughs> nor have we in our lives, Never. How, can, you, can you relate to Michael and, and do you have any advice for him? Oh, yes, I, I certainly can. Something Michael said, I think this is a paraphrase, uh, if I made 10K a month, this, uh, this wouldn't be a problem. And I totally, <laughs> I totally understand where the inclination is to feel that way, but afraid to say that's, that's probably not true. In fact, there's probably going to be more anxiety once there's more traction and, and you're more on the radar of your competitors and you're, you know, you're more in the game. Like It only gets 
more stressful. It's not hopeless. You can learn to manage that. So, you know, it's it's not like you'll be stuck with crippling anxiety the entire time on your founder journey, but it's a process. And it's one that I'm certainly going through all the time. I'm still constantly dealing with stressors in my business and having to try to, I think the big thing is trying to separate my anxiety or the way I feel about certain aspects of the business from my actual rational decision making. So I think this question you know, is kind of centered around like, I'm feeling this anxiety, how do I know when I should quit? And I think I would not view anxiety in and of itself as a reason to move on from your product. You know, your, your mental state's going to fluctuate a lot <laughs> as a founder. And, and I think a big part of the game is trying to not be reactive to these emotions, but to separate, separate your rational decision making from how you're feeling about things. And so I guess that's, that's encouragement to, to stick with it if this is what you desire. If you feel like you're playing in a space that you're optimistic about and you want to keep forging ahead, but you're feeling anxious, like this is my encouragement to you to, to, to stick with it. I would also say if you take a step back and really analyze your business and feel like you don't have that drive or you're just not interested in it, then that's okay too uh, if you decide that, that you're done with it and if you're struggling to get traction or whatever, you know, whatever you're, you're contending with here. But yeah, I think in, in general I would just try to, try to separate the anxiety from the, from the rational side of things. Yep, that's it. And it's easier said than done, but so are most of the hard things that you do in life, especially as an entrepreneur. There's an entire book written on this very topic called The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together. It's like $4 on Kindle. And my wife, Dr. Sherry Walling, wrote it. I contributed a small part of it as well, a lot of anecdotes and such. And it basically is around this topic. I absolutely have struggled with incredible amounts of anxiety most of my adult life. I figured out how to tame it about 10 years ago took me a long time. And actually, I didn't work on it before then. I just ignored it and pushed it down. I, have I evaluated being on anti-anxiety meds? Yeah. Should I probably have been on them in my 30s? Yeah, I never did. But I probably, like, I think my quality of life would have been higher, in all honesty. I think that there's a couple ways that I would think about this from a practical perspective. When I first listened to the voicemail and it said, you know, if I was making 10K, it would be worth it. Same thing you picked up on. I was like, record scratch. Nope, it's only going to get worse. Not going to get better, period. If it was 10K, if it was 100K, you would still hate it. Trust me, I've literally been there. <laughs> then I actually played this for Sherry just to say, oh, what do you, what do you think about this, right? She's a psychologist. She's a founder coach. Right when it hit the 10K line, she said, stop it. And I paused it and she said, yeah, that's not going to fix it. You know, so it, it's obvious that the, the money isn't going to make it better. The three things that I kind of noted in my head are doing inner work to figure out how to deal with your own psychology, right? More than being half of a successful founder is managing your own psychology. That can mean seeing a therapist, which I have done for on and off for years. That can mean getting in a mastermind. It's only every two weeks, so I don't, you know, might not carry you through, but it's a sanity check. And then another way is to have a co-founder. And that's easier said than done also, but like I think having a co-founder who is the exact opposite, don't look for someone else anxious and stressed like you. I will admit that like being a co-founder with Anar on Tiny Seed, he is the exact opposite in, in those terms. He like doesn't get anxious about anything, which has its own issues, right? But like early on when we were trying to launch Tiny Seed, I'm like, oh my God, the terms, ah, the thing. And he's like, yeah, man, we'll figure it out. Like we're, we're really smart and we know what we're doing. You know, I mean, in so many words, it's like, you need to chill out. And pretty soon I started kind of modeling that in my own head, right? I was already like doing better with all this, but like being around someone day to day who I saw, oh, he just kind of shrugged shit off and it always works. And then I thought to myself, so I don't shrug shit off and it always works in general. I'm exaggerating, but like it's the same thing. So why the fuck am I dealing with this anxiety every day when we are getting to the same outcomes? We are both having successes, yet I'm in this mental battle in my own head of someone said something negative about me on Twitter, someone, whatever it is, right? I get it. I've, I still experience all that. Actually, I had someone post overnight on my, I think they DM'd me on my Kickstarter with kind of a, kind of a rude entitled comment about how I didn't understand da-da-da-da. And I was just like, all right, <laughs> I get to get up and I get to take this with me. I get to be angry or I get to be stressed or I get to pick what I want to do. And, and that's, how I, that's how I deal with it these days. Yeah, you know, that's the point about masterminds. That just reminded me that this is something I've observed about myself. Like, I honestly, I'm going through some things with my business right now that are really challenging. Like, and I'm feeling at times 
low on energy or just frustrated and trying to trying to figure out how to problem solve at a high level. And I often find that when I'm having conversations with fellow founders who may be struggling with maybe not the exact same thing, but something similar enough, and I start to think about rationally, I can remove the emotions a little bit more when I'm thinking about their problems and I start to share some perspective and then I realize that oh a lot of this perspective actually applies to me as well like I need to get out of my own head and and just think step by step and so <laughs> I think there's a benefit to being in community and and sharing what you can to help others problem solve you can often give yourself the gift of some clarity on things just by nature of of helping other people yep I like it so thanks for the question Michael I hope that was helpful. Good luck, too. I know it's a tough place to be in, so I'm glad you wrote in. I'm sure there are a lot of other folks listening who share your sentiment. Our next question is from Greg about whether to find a technical co-founder or to outsource development. Hi, Rob. I'm Greg, and I live in Johannesburg, South Africa. I've been listening to your podcast for about five months now. Aside from enjoying it, I think it's adding value to the way I think about startups. I'm a chartered accountant, which is equivalent of your CPA, and I'm, I'm not technical, so I'm not doing any development myself. So my question, and I know there's a good chance you've answered this before, is do you think it's better to get a technical co-founder or to outsource development? My gut says a technical co-founder because I feel like ongoing development in particular would be easier and more efficient, but I don't know, and hence the question. But if you do recommend a technical co-founder, how do you find that person? Thanks for any advice, Rob. So Derek, technical co-founder or not? You are a developer founder, so you, you, know, you don't have to make this choice, but in his shoes, how would you think about it? Yeah, and I'm curious to hear your perspective on this too, because thinking through some different angles here, like I would say if you, if you can find that technical co-founder, I think that's clearly the best option you know it's it's good to have someone who's fully invested in the product and in the business and has that that expertise and can can look over that that side of things for sure i think there is kind of a big practical challenge in finding one of those you know and and so i would also be i wouldn't be hesitant to to play it up so much that to say that you have to find a technical co-founder or else you shouldn't proceed with starting your business. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of things to consider if you are vetting someone as a technical co-founder. I mean, do you do you work well together? Do you like each other? Do you know this person or have you just met? You want to give it some time first before you, you know, decide to partner up and go into business. Do you share the same goals? Are you aligned on what you want out of the business and do you want to sell it? Do you want to run it for a long time? Uh, there's so many things to consider. You know, how do you split the equity? All of that. So, I wouldn't recommend rushing into any kind of co-founder relationship and you know certainly there are other other paths if you can't find one. I would say if you if you don't end up with a technical co-founder then I would probably recommend working with an agency as opposed to just hiring and managing your own developers. I I've seen this happen in, in multiple cases where non-technical founder goes and finds their own developers, hires them and if they get lucky and they happen to be really good at architecting a sound code base, then you might be fine. But if no one's on, on team kind of looking over that, then you could find yourself in a place where you actually have a lot of spaghetti code and you not being a developer just aren't able to, to keep tabs on that the same. So you know, perhaps an agency where they can provide some oversight over the development process of your, of your first version would be wise. Yeah, it's a marriage if you're going to get the co-founder, right? Yep. And it's it's hard to meet someone and then decide to start a company together right away. So it takes time. All things being equal, you're going to give away the most equity to your co-founder. It, you could be 100% and hire an agency. You could be 50-50 or some, you know, some number in there. The problem is, I believe, I forget what the exact number is. I should look it up because I keep referencing it here. But like the percentage of tiny seed companies that we have funded without a developer co-founder is somewhere in the 10 to 15% range. It's very, very small. And the, even the number in the broader, that about matches what's in the broader microconf ecosystem based on the state of independent SaaS. And there's a reason for that. It's because just getting something built and getting it far enough to revenue without a technical co-founder is very expensive. And once you get there, as you said, Almost always, I will say that this code is shit. and I've seen it 
a dozen times at least, maybe 30 times. I mean, it's, it's a large number where even today as a former developer, if I hired an agency to build a product for me, I wouldn't be able to QA the code quality. Now, I'd be able to QA the app quality, right, the functional layers and see when it's breaking, but it'd be very time consuming for me. And it's a tough one. I see the companies who don't have a technical co-founder, where it's just a subject matter expert or a subject matter expert and a salesperson, for example, the number one issue for them constantly ongoing, sometimes for years, is the product. And then they try to find a new developer. And then they, well, we, oh, we hired juniors, so now we need a senior. Oh, and now we, we, the age, original agency that did it did this and they messed this up. So now we have to rewrite the whole code base. I had a friend who rewrote the code base twice because the first agency screwed it up. And then he brought like a senior contractor in who wrote the whole thing. And then they had to rewrite the whole thing again once he, he then raised around and then had enough to hire, you know, he was non-technical. So I'm telling the horror stories. I can't tell you, you should give away 50% of your company to someone. I can't give you that advice. What I can say is the people who don't have a developer co-founder, over and over and over, I see the same thing and they just struggle with the product side. Even like I quote Craig Hewitt, non-technical founder of Castos, which he has said is doing, you know, seven figures. And his biggest takeaway is if I did this again, I would either have a co-founder or I would have enough money to hire someone that I basically know, that I would pay him a full salary, that I would swipe him away, a senior that's in my country, you know, or really close to me in my time zones, and I would do it. And that's been his learning from doing this for six, seven years. It would be tough. Yeah, and I think that is, that's actually a good point. Another option as opposed to the agency is like, if you have the cash or the ability to raise it or, or however, borrow it or whatever, to pay basically a senior level developer who you can even have, you know, someone who's more technical help vet them, help interview them, and and see if they have good chops, you know. Um, so if you can hire that role, that that might get you in a better spot as well. Because it's ownership at that point. Well, the moment you out, when you say outsource. It's someone who just doesn't care about your code or your business. In almost all cases, I'm generalizing. Of course, there are some contractors who are really good and really conscientious. A lot of them are dollars for hours, and they're just trying to get the thing shipped and get the money. I, I say this to someone who was a contractor for many years, and I always tried to be as conscientious as I could. I did have other priorities competing sometimes, and I worked with a lot of people who just didn't care and were there for a paycheck, as with a lot of jobs. So that's where outsourcing is like, I think that's going to be tough. But the moment you get someone who it's like, hey, you're going to be here with, even if it's not 50-50, but it's like, I'll pay you a salary and you'll get enough equity, a few percentage points, whatever that number is, where they do have that quote-unquote ownership of it and they want to keep the code base really sparkling clean. For the second part of his question, which was, if I look for a co-founder, where do I find them? I went to ChatGPT, and not only did I ask ChatGPT, but then I took its answer and I ran it through the voice simulator in my own voice. So we're, we're about to roll that here. I want to caveat this in advance. I asked ChatGPT like four of the questions from this episode, and a lot of the answers were just very generic, like unusable. And I would turn them into audio and I was falling asleep because it was just boring and like, oh, and do this and then test and then, you know, whatever. So for this clip, I took the best, you know, 800 word response. And these are like, these are the best 200 words. So let's not, let's not assume that our job, Derek, will be, uh, will be obsolete anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. All right. If you decide to pursue a technical co-founder, here are some approaches to finding the right person. Number one, networking. Attend industry events, meetups, or join online communities where technical professionals gather. Cough, cough, microconf, in-person events, and microconf connect. Engage with potential co-founders, share your vision, and look for individuals who align with your goals. Number two, co-founder matchmaking platforms. Platforms like Co-Founders Lab, Founder Dating, or AngelList can connect you with potential technical co-founders who are looking to join startups. Remember that finding a technical co-founder involves building a relationship based on trust, shared values, and a common vision. Take the time to evaluate potential candidates and ensure that they bring the necessary skills, expertise, and dedication to the table. All right, so, so first of all, amazing that ChatGPT did the cough, cough, <laughs> microcomp thing. Isn't that great? Yeah, to totally, definitely did not add that in. Yeah, but I was Here's the thing, what was the trip is I was going to say, go to in-person events, and go to online communities. And of course, I was going to mention, since I run both of those for exactly this audience, go to an in-person microconf, whether it's a local or a flagship, and go to microconf connect. And that really, I think, was the first point that ChatGPT made. 
the interesting thing is I didn't know there were co-founder matchmaking services. Of course there are. Now that I've read it, I'm like, yeah, why? of course that should exist. But ChatGPT just whips it out, so to speak. That's good stuff. Yeah, I uh, and it's a little bit of uncanny valley with the with the Rob voice. <laughs> <laughs> That's creepy, huh? Yeah, I figured you'd yeah. get a kick out of that. It's like, is Rob really? Rob's in front of me, and he doesn't have a cold <laughs> yeah. today, so he doesn't sound that uh, way. Yeah, it's good. I I think the other thing. I mean, re- really, like the issue I have with the matchmaking services. I I would love to believe that works. We've been asked to do that at MicroConf to do because we do mastermind matchmaking. Why wouldn't we do founder matchmaking? I'm just skeptical. It's like matchmaking people for marriage. Yeah, it's really hard. I to was going to say the same thing. Like, there's there probably should be like hinge for for founders yeah. and maybe that probably exists. <laughs> what is honestly, the swiping is that like on Tinder. Okay, hinge is like, like a Tinder. App? Yeah, you swipe. How do you swipe know left, what hinge right. is? Uh, yeah, I I have a single friend. Oh, God, sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's actually a, one of my favorite hobbies because she's very uh, doesn't like the process of online dating, and I love going through and swiping on profiles because <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Finding co-founders hard, but yeah, it's <laughs> it's hard. Like just like finding a life partner, finding a co-founder is similarly complex and and difficult. So it's like, yeah, I guess in that sense, probably try try multiple different things and kind of see uh, see how far you get. And what do you bring to the table? And in your case, you are an accountant in South Africa, so I think you have some budget. Subject matter expertise is, it's a little bit, but that's not much compared to a developer who's going to put in hundreds of hours. Like, are you going to put in hundreds of hours too? You know, that's the thing when you start talking about this is if you don't bring like, I know how to market, I have an MVP built in no code, I have... 20 people on a wait list who told me they would buy that. Like these are valuable things. Saying, oh, I know the business problem. Eh, I could do customer interviews and find that out. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay it too much, but like I could talk to 10 accountants and probably find a problem. So it's that's not worth, again, hundreds of hours of my time that I would otherwise be billing at 50, 100, 200 dollars an hour. So thanks for the question, Greg. I hope that was helpful. Finding the perfect software engineer for your team can feel like looking for a needle in a haystack, and the process can quickly become overwhelming. But what if you had a partner who could provide you with over 1,000 on-demand, vetted, senior, results-oriented developers who are passionate about helping you succeed, and all that at competitive rates? Meet Lemon.io. They only offer hand-picked developers with three or more years of experience and strong, proven portfolios. With Lemon.io, you can have an engineer start working on your project within a week instead of months. Plus, you won't waste your time on candidates who aren't qualified. Lemon.io gives you easy access to global talent without scouring countless job boards, and it's more affordable than hiring local talent. And if anything goes wrong, Lemon.io offers swift replacements, so it's kind of like hiring with a warranty. If you need to grow your engineering team or delegate some work, give Lemon.io a try. Learn more by visiting Lemon.io slash startups and find your perfect developer or tech team in 48 hours or less. As a bonus for our podcast listeners, get a 15% discount on your first four weeks of working with a developer. Stop burning money, hire devs smarter. Visit Lemon.io slash startups. Next question is about whether to double down on a game that this caller built or to launch a SaaS app. Hey Rob, this is Lasso from Budapest, Hungary, long-time listener and first-time caller. I'm facing a unique dilemma and frustrating your insights. Last year, while working a full-time developer job, I accidentally entered the web game business by creating a simple movie team daily game just for fun. To my surprise, I attracted 20k daily visitors and generated enough ad revenue to match my job salary, leading me to resign. Currently, the game's popularity is gradually decreasing, along with the whole daily game trend, but I still have 10,000 daily users. Simultaneously, I'm excited about building a SaaS product and have some promising prevalidated ideas, such as real feedback, a chat GPT-powered conversational user feedback bot that I designed based on my own needs. So I'm at the decision point now. Should I take advantage of my current web game audience and explore related opportunities, or dive into the SaaS world, even if it means starting from zero. I would greatly appreciate your advice. Derek, as someone who has always longed to build a game to 20,000 daily active users or whatever he said, what, uh, what are your thoughts on his predicament here? Yeah, well, first of all, congrats on getting something off the ground like that. That's, that's pretty cool. 
I would say, though, that I'm still always going to advocate for B2B SaaS over an ad-based website for, for consumers. And I think the big, the big thing here is like, that is just, Games especially are so inherently like hype cycle driven. Like even you look at the biggest, some of the biggest game makers in the world kind of wildly fluctuate on their ability to even stay in business because it's just so hit based and it's very difficult to engineer that. Versus, you know, B2B SaaS, we have so many different playbooks and resources for identifying, validating, marketing, growing your SaaS business. And honestly, most of those just would not apply to to trying to to build and get traction with the game. So I think for those reasons, I would strongly advocate uh, SaaS over a game. You wrote into a SaaS podcast, what'd you expect? <laughs> yeah, I, I can't imagine building a game into a revenue stream. Hit-based, which is what you said, is exactly how I think of games. It's, it's kind of like saying, I'm going to write songs for, for money. It's like, cool, hope you get lucky. Talk about hard work, luck, and skill. To be good at writing songs, do you need a tremendous amount of hard work? Usually. You look at anybody, Ed Sheeran, you look at the Lizzo documentary, Beyonce, whatever, there's a bunch of Netflix documentaries I've been watching of them backstage, and they work their ass off. I mean, these are hardworking people. Do they have skill? Hell yes, they do. And as someone myself who's been in bands and played the guitar for 20 years and sang in bands and still cannot stand how that my voice is not where I want it to be and these people are there, I know that they have some skill that I personally don't think I will ever have. So they have hard work. They have skill. And guess what? They still need a load of luck to get where they are and then to stay where they are, right? Because we hear so many people here who come in with a big hit or two and then that hit-based nature is tough. I think of games as the same thing. I love games. I play games. I never want to build games as a business myself. So I would be thinking about how can I sell this thing to give me some runway? I know it's not monetized, but 10,000 daily active users, that's a number. That's not zero. You know, it's like, is there value here? Is there any type of strategic that would buy it? Because if you can get any type of money for it, I, I would be using that to try to propel me forward on my journey of SaaS. Now, is SaaS as interesting or exciting as building games? No, no way. But I look for a repeatable relatively predictable ways to build incredible businesses. And I could imagine myself building 50 games and maybe zero of them working out. You know, I think the numbers are that bad. And my personality is one that I think if I build, even starting out three, four, five SaaS apps, I think one of them can catch. If I like, I'm not going to just build three and spray and pray. I don't like that approach. But if I really follow them through, I think I'm going to catch something eventually that's going to get me to a place where I quit the day job. Yeah, you look at some of these, some of the like indie hackers right now, indie makers who are selling into consumer space, you know, your Peter Levels, Danny Postma, like doing the AI headshots type of stuff. And it's it's fascinating to watch their journeys. And it's a lot of it is propelled, I think, off of kind of decently large audiences on social media that, you know, you're able to get get big exposure that way, but still like the amount of Revenue they're able to retain is is quite low. Churn is churn is crazy high, and they're constantly having to kind of reinvent. You know, what's the next product? What's the next little mini hype cycle to to try to ride? And it honestly looks so exhausting. I'm I'm happy that they're achieving some success doing it, but I think it's a really hard thing to to replicate. Yeah, hamster wheel is what comes to mind. Of like, I gotta build, I gotta build, I gotta build. Ooh, and then I product hunted, and I, I'm gonna, I need product hunt, I need Reddit, I need Hacker News, I need whatever other viral pop Twitter because I have 100,000, 200,000 followers. And then the moment that dies down, it's like, well, I can't really SEO this. The average revenue per account is too low to do pay per click ads. Uh, I guess I'll tweet about it again. You know what I mean? That's the thing that I think about in terms of building those types of tools. That doesn't mean you shouldn't. But it's certainly not for me. Like I always wanted, I shouldn't say always actually, from 2005 till about 20, 2010, 2011, I built little tools like that and it was cool. I didn't do it on the hype cycle thing like that, but that's certainly the way to do it today. But then I matured or graduated into another form of thinking, which is I want to build a business that's maybe five or 10 times bigger, but that's, that's sustainable, right? I want to build something that can be around for years and years and have true enterprise value, not just throw off a ton of cash cash is good, but I want to think about the next decade, you know, not about the next 10 months. So thanks for the question. I hope that was helpful. Our next question is from Anonymous, and they ask, do you have tools or techniques to track how much traffic came from which sources and what the conversion rates were? Also, any for tracking results of A-B testing? 
So let's answer the first part of his question, and then we will let ChatGPT weigh in one more time on the split <laughs> testing tools. The reason I asked ChatGPT on this one, I asked the whole question, and the first part, the answer was generic and stupid, and I, it just wasn't worth it. But I wasn't sure these days what are the AB or split testing tools that people are still using and they're still around because I haven't done it in a few years. And so I looked at it and I was like, well, assuming it's not an AI hallucination, I actually like its answer on this one. But what are your thoughts on that first part, which is how do you track how many people are coming from where and if they're converting? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's those are pretty standard features of pretty much any website analytics product. And there's tons of those on the market today. You know, there's kind of the old standard of, Google Analytics. I know that Google Analytics is going through a major like upgrade cycle right now, and people are losing their minds. <laughs> I've heard bad things. GA four. I still have. I keep getting emails because I have it on our you know our media sites and Tiny Seed and all that, and I just can't bring myself to upgrade. And I heard it's kind of a mess. Yep, that's what I hear. And you know, there's every founder needs to decide how much they want to kind of try to optimize their experience while also remaining GDPR compliant, if that's something that's important to you. So there are kind of a set of tools out there that are kind of supposed to be more privacy-centric. And the part I like about them is that the way they're architected, you don't technically have to put a cookie banner on your website if that's the only thing that is tracking on there um, because they're using technology that doesn't require cookies and stays within the boundaries of GDPR. So Fathom Analytics is the one that I use for that. You do give up a little bit of fidelity of data because they can't they can't remember who a visitor is for very long in order to retain remain GDPR compliant. So there are some trade-offs there, but you know, there's a number of tools out there that you can explore and any any website analytics tool worth their salt will have sources tracking and conversion rates and goals and all that kind of stuff. I thought in three levels of kind of beginning table stakes intermediate and advanced. And beginning table stakes for me is is a Google Analytics or a Fathom. As, as you just said. So we're on the same page with that. The intermediate is more funnel tracking, which is mixed panel or heap. And there's others, but those are the two that I hear about. A lot of tiny seed companies use them. And then the kind of a really advanced platform that is built not only for tracking who comes from where and how they convert, but then it will track them all the way through their life as a customer. So it, it'll literally say, people who came from this particular Facebook ad in this two-week period a year ago churned higher than this, right? I mean, really deep stuff that even we, like we didn't have that at Drip. I couldn't tell it all the way through. I was, was guessing at averages, but that's Segmetrics. And it's a, it's a Segmetrics.io. It's a tiny seed company. And he built it for this reason, for people who are running, you're running 100 grand a month, 200 grand a month, a million a month in ads. You have to track that because you can't just go on averages, right? And it's worth paying for it. So that's my mental model of kind of the beginning, you know, intermediate and advanced as it stands today. Yeah, I'll throw one more out there to June for product analytics. There's sort of a newer newer option, but trying to be kind of kind of what Mixpanel was back in the early days. I think Mixpanel has gotten a little, you know, it's 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 an older product. It's kind of grown in complexity over time, and um, June's trying to kind of breathe new life into the product analytics space. So I've been enjoying that one. And so for A/B testing, also known as split testing, let's hear from Rob GPT on the topic of A/B testing tools. When conducting A-B tests to compare different versions of your website or landing pages, tools like Optimizely, Google Optimize, or VWO, Visual Website Optimizer, can help you set up and track the results. These tools allow you to create variations, split your traffic, and measure the performance of each version based on defined goals. You didn't ask, but allow me to be obnoxiously verbose as AI is inclined to be and talk about heat map and session recording tools. Tools like Hotjar and Crazy Egg provide heat maps and session recordings that show how users interact with your website. Heat maps visually represent where users click, scroll, or hover on your pages, while session recordings capture actual user sessions. The interesting thing I thought with ChatGPT is we really didn't ask about heat mapping. I actually think that maybe with analytics, it kind of it went a step further. I wouldn't have brought heat mapping into this conversation, and maybe it's more advanced. But I do think that the two, what do they say, Crazy Egg and Hotjar? It's good suggestions. Again, I hand I handpicked the best parts of like a seven part answer. So, what, what did you think? You agree with uh, Rob GPT there? Yeah, seemed seemed pretty on point. I was actually pleasantly surprised that the tooling, I because I haven't done a lot of marketing website A/B testing in the last couple of years either, and um, those tools are ones that I kind of recognize. Seems like the the old standards are kind of still kicking out there. Yeah, I think until I just don't know that there's room for another player right now until one of those 
kind of becomes crapified, you know, like aged tools to usually do that, or they go to private equity or whatever, or there's like enough, there's enough room for innovation, right? Or like, man, the UX is really bad. Someone just needs a better UX version. It's like, it's not there yet, but I do think we'll get there eventually. I feel like something like AI generated split test variations or something, that, that might be the next, what the next iteration looks like. You know? Yeah. And there are tools out there that do that actually. I was screwing around with one about a year ago before all the chat GPT stuff. Shouldn't be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> he, he grumbles under it, grumble, grumble. I know I'm as tired of hearing about AI as everyone else, I'm gonna admit. All right. So thanks for the question. Hope that was helpful. Last one of the day, Derek. I was gonna cut a short, but man, books. I just can't not talk about books, right? I have like 843 books in my Audible account and uh, I've listened to at least all the grown-up ones because there's kid books in there. So the question, this question is from Jessica. Thanks for the great podcast. As someone who's six months into the first startup, it's been a great resource. In recent episodes, you've mentioned a few times that you're the type of person who likes to read whole books on new areas or skills as you're trying to adopt them. The last example I can think of was marketing. Have you kept a running list of your favorite books on different topics related to SaaS startups? As an avid reader, I would probably read all the books on such a list. So why don't we do this? We, ha- we haven't coordinated on this, but I'm going to assume you brought a list. So why don't you go first with one book and then I'll do one and we'll just go back and forth until we're out. Cool. Yeah. So I'll say like caveat that I'm, I just picked some books that are sort of on specific subject matters and I am definitely a proponent of just-in-time learning. So like I would say like I try not to like just read 10 different books um, all on a bunch of different topics and then hope I can apply them you know, down the road, I would say like, do yourself a favor and like, read the book on positioning when you're working on positioning, for example. But that being said, since I just mentioned it, I'll give this one as, as an example. Obviously Awesome by April Dunford. I was, heard her speak at a microconf a couple of years ago and she's awesome. And that was around the time that she published her book, Obviously Awesome, on um, all about positioning. And she has experiences ranging from, I think she worked at IBM or large database company or something and has tons of experience kind of doing this at a smaller scale and at a really large scale. So highly recommend that for learning how to position your product. And I totally cheated on this one because not four days ago, a YouTube video that I recorded went live on the MicroConf YouTube channel, microconf.com slash YouTube. The title was 12 books every SaaS founder should read this year. So I actually had already done a bunch of research for that. And what I did was I went to the books that I felt have, have really stuck around and impacted me over the long term as a SaaS founder. Then I went to Twitter because I, you know, I'm, I have blind spots and I asked and I probably got like 50 different suggestions for books and some were great and some were just not right. Some I'm not going to recommend to people. And I combined that and called it and I called it down to 12 because I kind of thought once one a month for a year, I won't go through all 12 here. We will obviously link that YouTube video up in the show notes. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a quick watch, right? You can get through all. But the first one that I want to talk about is all, I almost guarantee this is on your list too, but it's Traction by Gabriel Weinberg and Justin Maris. And it needs an update. Like the tactics in it are now outdated because it's almost a 10 year old book, I think. But it just gives you a way to think about when you have no idea how to market a B2B company. It's a bunch of, it's 20 chapters ish and like 20 marketing approaches. And it, they interviewed an expert in each one and they said, How do you do? pay-per-click advertising or Facebook advertising, Noah Kagan, who at the time was growing up soon with that. And he just weighed in with a bunch of things and asked some questions. They wrote a chapter. They asked me about like growing your business through in-person events because I was running MicroConf and I just you know know a lot about him. So, but it, it's just continues to be a mainstay, maybe not for the details of how to do everything, but almost like a buffet of like, oh, so these are a bunch of the approaches that I could feasibly do. You know, and then there's there's more detail on those from a B2B SaaS perspective that I have added in a book that I will suggest in a second. I don't want to go two in a row, but Traction by Gabriel Weinberg. Yep, definitely on my list. I and that's one of the ones that sits on my shelf and I will revisit it every, you know, six to twelve months as I'm thinking about has the nature of my business changed? Am I should I revisit some traction channels that maybe I experimented with a year or two ago and now I should take another look at them. So it's yeah, it's a it's a great one. I think my next one is, I mentioned it earlier in the episode, The Mom Test. Um, this one came to me at a moment where I was just coming off of a failed product because I failed to have customer conversations that weren't tainted by people wanting me to succeed but not giving me accurate information. So I was feeling quite disillusioned after that. And when I read this book, it sort of, it sort of opened my eyes to all the different ways that 
that you can ask questions of customers or potential customers in the wrong way and then ways to think about framing those conversations so that you're minimizing false signals. So the mom test, I think, is just an invaluable resource. It's very super actionable, very short, and gives you, gives you tactics you can start implementing on day one. It's become a staple in our spaces. The second book is If You Want to Learn Sales as a Founder, and it's called Founding Sales by Pete Kazanji. First time I ever heard of this book was in the last six months, and I don't even remember how we got connected, but I wound up interviewing Pete on this show, and so he sent me a copy of his book, and when I opened it, I was like, 450 pages, ugh. Like, I, normally that means to me, that means padding. It means, you're, it means you're not succinct enough. Turns out, no, what it actually means in his case is he just wrote a book that took you all the way from I know nothing about sales all the way to scaling a sales team and hiring sales leaders. So it's this huge reference tome. So that's what I like about it. If you don't need to learn how to do sales and you're doing low touch, no touch, don't, don't do it. But you just flip to any chapter that, and they're titled, you know, how to do sales as a founder how to build your slide deck for a sales, how to give a demo as a founder doing sales. And then it's like how to hire your first salesperson, how to scale a sales team, how to hire sales leadership, you know, whatever. There's like 13, 14 chapters. And they're just so in-depth because he was himself learning along the way. He was a non-sales founder of a SaaS company and he was recording all of his stuff. And he has the crazy screenshots of like terrible demo deck with bad graphics, you know, and he's like, but that, but it sold things. So just iterate fast, you know. Anyways, founding sales is one that has quickly kind of become a, you know, a staple in my arsenal. I'd say my next one is Lost and Founder by Rand Fishkin. This one's another kind of great look at a founder's story as he sort of encountered what not to do when when trying to grow and scale your business and how to how to deal with raising funding or not raising funding and the pitfalls that can come with that. And it's a really kind of personal personal story from a really, really smart founder, uh, founder of SEO Moz and sort of his, his experience doing that. So highly recommend it for you know, any founders thinking about level of ambition for your company and how you want to think about staying independent or raising outside investment or going full venture capital. He has a lot of wisdom um, on that and things to think about as trade-offs. My next one is another marketing book. As see the things that have had a lot of impact on me as a developer were things that were teaching me how to market, right? And one that came up more recently that I didn't read back in the day, but that has been suggested to me by several tiny seed founders is called the one page marketing plan. And what's good about it, look, you can go to several other books over the last 10 years and cobble it together, but it just pulls a bunch of stuff into a succinct tome. And it's not like traction where it has these individual market, but it's it's like high level thinking about marketing, but not so high level that it's like marketing is the is the approach to get people to consider demand for your product. You know what I mean? It's like I don't need to read an MBA definition. It's like in between those in, in a good way. So one page marketing plan. I'm gonna cheat and mention two books here because they're just they're quite related and both things that I've been diving into recently about specifically interviewing customers and learning learning about jobs to be done type things. So there's Deploy Empathy from Michelle Hansen is kind of a very, I would say this is like a very microconf friendly type of book because it's it is super tactical and she has, you know, scripts that you can use in specific cases. If you're having a conversation with a customer about why they switched or about why they canceled or about, you know, why they stick around if they've been around a long time. She has specific uh, scripts you can use as kind of a starting place for jumpstarting those conversations. And so it, it gets down into, you know, hands-on stuff. It's not just theoretical, I guess. Another book kind of along these lines is Demand Side Sales 101 from Bob Moesta, one of the one of the OGs of Jobs to Be Done framework. And that one is also quite short, easy to read, and kind of frames selling your product through a Jobs to Be Done um, mindset as opposed to the, the, the way that a lot of us software people imagine sales going, which is kind of a greasy used car salesman type of approach. This is, you know, com- the complete opposite to that. So those are two wrecks. Those are great ones. My last one. And of course I say last, I have 10 more. <laughs> I, we just have to stop the podcast at some yep. time, right? We should, should we just do a whole episode of this? I mean, that's kind of, I bet, I bet people would like it. I bet so. This one kills me to mention because it's my book. It's the SaaS playbook. And I always feel like it's super gauche to mention your own book. But 
like in terms of if you want to build a million dollar, multi-million dollar SaaS company, I wrote it because there was nothing else on, on the market that said the stuff that I thought should be said, right? And so what was funny is when I was going to do my YouTube video, I went to Twitter and people started suggesting it. And I was like, Ugh, I can't really mention my own book. And then eventually I was like, I guess I, I, I think I should. So I truly like it or your money back. That's just how I feel about it. Like it's, it's the best book I've ever written. And I hope that, you know, I hope you like it. I did the Kickstarter. It's done. Uh, you can go to sasplaybook.com. If you're in the U.S., you can get a physical copy. If you're uh, anywhere not in the U.S., you can get electronic copies. If you really want a physical copy and you're not in the U.S., then you'll have to wait till the fall. That's when it'll be on Amazon. But right now we're in the middle of Kickstarter fulfillment, hardback books. There's a bunch of stuff going on and we just can't fulfill one off. The, the ones being ordered on sasplaybook.com are literally shipping from my house. And I cannot be, I can't deal with customs and the tw- it's like $27 to ship to countries that are not that far from us to ship a book. It's insane. So all that said, yeah, I've mentioned on the podcast here before, you don't need to hear more about it. It's kind of everything I know at this point about building these types of companies. That's awesome. And I, yeah, I can't wait to, to add that one to my bookshelf. I'm sure it'll be one of the ones that, that I'll be referencing every X months to just, to just kind of reevaluate the playbook. So I'm, I'm really glad that's in the world. How about you? You have any final books or that, that wrap us up? Yeah, it's funny. I'm, I'm looking through my, I have this, this page on my website, DerekRimer.com slash books for founders and start small, stay small is definitely on there too. As like, that was, you know, your, your first book, right? Your very first? Yep, yeah, it was. Yep. Yeah. And that one was super influential in, in thinking, in my thinking about starting B2B SaaS companies. And I feel like SaaS Playbook is probably sort of a successor to that. I also really appreciate, I, I revisit this one every so often. It's Getting Real by 37 Signals. And it's one of, I think it might be their first book. And it's just a bunch of short little essays. And I feel like they're just particularly talented at crystallizing ideas and thoughts in really effective ways. And so I I just enjoy occasionally revisiting those and and getting a little bit of renewed insight or renewed enthusiasm for, for running my own business. Yeah, I love going back to books like that that were formative Getting Real was not formative for me. I don't, for some reason, it, I didn't come across it back in the day. But there are books that I read back then that just blew my mind, changed the way I was thinking about entrepreneurship, about being a solo founder. And I'll go back and read them years later and I'll either, I'll do both of these things actually, I will pick up on things that I didn't get. And I'm like, whoa, I didn't think that was in this book. But now, since I understand where I am now, I, I understand it at a new level. Other times I'll look and be like, wow, super dated. This is so obvious. How did I not know this? And that will just show you how far you've come. I didn't know it because it was 15 years ago, you know, and this was not common knowledge in the way that like this particular book probably communicated it. So I bet, I bet there have to be some moments in getting real that are like that for you. Yeah, totally. Amazing, sir. Well, Jessica, those are some books we uh, we tossed out. Again, there's like another seven or eight on the 12 books every SaaS founder should read this year, a YouTube video. And uh, DerekReimer.com, right on the homepage, if you scroll down, it says books for founders and you can find out, you know, another handful there. Mr. Reimer, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Yeah, it was great, man. So folks want to keep up with you on Twitter, you are at Derek Reimer, that's R-E-I-M-E-R, and SavvyCal.com the best scheduling link on the internet. <laughs> well, that's, thank you, sir. That should be your H1. It's not, <laughs> but I, that's what I always tell people. Oh, well, <laughs> you're too kind. Thanks again, man. Thanks. It's always great to have Derek on the show. Hope you enjoyed his perspective on those questions. I intentionally let this one go long today because I find that sometimes we get on a roll and cutting it off arbitrarily leaves some content on the table, so to speak. We were prepared to answer the questions and you know, hopefully the last... 10 minutes or so was as entertaining as the first few. Thanks for sticking around this week and every week. This is Rob Walling signing off from episode 666. 